0: Welcome to the RSP Quick Game Week 20, Mark Schofield, Matt Waldman. We're glad to have you guys in to listen to this, and, you know, it's been, you know, an interesting playoff season from the standpoint that we've had an added team. We'll talk a little bit about playoffs. We'll talk a little bit about, you know, some scouting thoughts, um, you know, things going around the NFL, and college football at least in terms of prospect evaluation. and maybe a little bit things off topic as well as usually get around here. So um, first, you know, the RSP is available for pre-sale. You can get it for twenty one ninety five. You get the pre-draft and the post-draft. It's in its 17th year. I've got about close to 130 players watched at this point out of the 150 that we're going to be at least having in the pre-draft. Anybody else that I want to watch or that we think we should watch will be... Um, evaluated for the post-draft, and you get a newsletter as well throughout the year, uh, multiple times throughout the um, year through December um, that gives you updates on players that I'm looking at for the 23 class, updates on the 22 class, and maybe classes before you get um, three years of, um, the past three years of rookie classes, I re-rank them during that time multiple times. And then there's also the projections. You know, for 24.95, you get... Um, Projections for you know two years out of each of each player who is going to probably be um um on an NFL roster. Um, I even label where I think if they're going to go to a practice squad or I think they could play be on the practice squad, um, and you know give you rankings for that. And those rankings are more dynasty oriented, where you get a three you get more of a long-term build and they're tiered as well as a short-term build that's tiered and all again that's available for 24.95 um and that's updated multiple times throughout the year and then one time around the free agency period of the following year so that you kind of get a jump start on your dynasty league before I start the new subscription so that's what's going on there mark appreciate you you know hanging out in the lobby here <laughs> as, as no, i, I was promote. Just about
1: to apologize for the alexa apparently i got a, a national weather service emergency with a little winter storm coming the dc way so well, look at you that's guys. what that little that's what that little buzz was
0: well heck we got a little dusting in georgia i yeah i saw a bunch of kids playing with snowmen um you know getting well, the snowman so there's enough for a snowman that wasn't bad so that's I, not bad at all yeah and it cleaned off all our yards in the process so um, Love it. <laughs> so that's um, that we're the envy of every northern city in in the United States. So um, Kyler Murray has he been found out as a quarterback in terms of having a flawed pocket game? I mean, this is a guy that I I got that question from somebody you know on Twitter. I know that from my pre-draft reports he had some flaws as a pocket player. I thought that he was a guy who. You know, he kind of—he's not the Tom. You know, Tom. There's nobody that's Tom Brady, but Tom Brady, being right. the prototype, does a great job of being able to slide and keep his feet under him, and he's and he's able to change pace, but do it in a way where it's very controlled, so that when he resets, he can fire that ball. Whereas Kyler's kind of more of a and has always been this way, and I haven't seen it change he flits from spot to spot. It's kind of like those little pixies with wings you see in your kids' cartoons who, like, they flutter to one spot and then back to the other, or a hummingbird or something like that. He kind of moves that way, and it can cause him to be a little bit off balance at times. Um, And I think that that rushing from spot to spot may make it a little bit hard for him sometimes to, to see secondary pressure or things like that. But, you know, if you think he's you know, been found out how much does it really matter for his career or for the Cardinals or for scouting quarterbacks in general?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to go here. I, I do think it's important to remember that that game came against Aaron Donald, Leonard Floyd and Von Miller. I mean, that that's a very good defensive front that the Los Angeles Rams have. They could put pressure on even the most competent uh, of pocket quarterbacks. I mean, we'll see what happens this weekend against Tom Brady, particularly if Tristan Wirfs can't go. I mean, Brady might – not that he will, but he might have some similar moments in the pocket where it looked like, oh, Kyler Murray, he can't figure it out. He's not a pocket passer. Well, here's one of the best pocket passers of all time, and he might struggle in the face of those guys. So I, I think – you know, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later. Sometimes we're going to restrain ourselves from making wild conclusions based on the event of one game. That might be part of the lesson here. I do think that with Murray, there was always that process versus results argument where is his process of being an athlete at Oklahoma? Will that be consistently repeatable at the next level? And Monday night might've shown that there are some limitations to that. You know, if you get an athletic defensive front, like sort of neutralize what he does from an athletic profile, the ceiling might be limited with what he can do as a passer, as a result of that. And so shifted into the evaluation world, you know, we take that process, we take that result, we ask ourselves if that is a repeatable process, down it and down out. And when you get to the next, say, athletic quarterback, Malik Willis, for example, uh, Sam Howell, for example, with what they do, with how they handle pockets, is that going to be something that can be replicated at the next level? So I think there, you know, we should always be sort of revising and altering our evaluation process and our mindset, with an eye towards where the game is headed, you know, and what Murray did and what he did over the course of the season, there are certain some strengths to his game that can be duplicated week in and week out, but there might be some limitations as a result when you come like ag- up against defenses that can match his athleticism up front.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a a, a well stated point, and and I want to expand upon the scouting part of it because. Really I think that I know for myself when I scout players I'm trying to think of like the highest standard that I can that I'm gonna scout them against and then from there it allows me to analyze the realistic standard below that. Because the highest standard is, yeah, when when you're facing, you know, pressure that's constantly coming that and that can happen in the NFL you know, the very best are able to stand up to that in the sense that if there's, you know, maybe one point of pressure at a time or two points at a time, because if you have more than two points of pressure at a time, you can't expect a quarterback to avoid that. You can usually, a a very good pocket quarterback can manage two points of pressure at a time, depending on the, the timing of how it's arriving in the angles that it's arriving at. And we've seen Brady do that repeatedly as well, as some other quarterbacks. Um, but you're talking about the best and that's the best standard. So, right. you know, so the realistic answer for this is like you said, how, how many teams in the NFL have Von Miller, Aaron Donald and Leonard Floyd all in one area and could right. blitz a Jalen Ramsey off the edge. Who is not bad at doing that when they decide they right. want to do that kind of thing. So, And somebody might say, "Well, the Buccaneers have you know two linebackers that they can blitz, and Jason Pierre-Paul and Shaq Barrett. You know what about that?" And and there's truth to that, but you're saying, "Okay, we've mentioned two teams. We might be able to mention five in the league, and they're the five best defenses in the league." So you, you know, at some point, you have to say. I, I can't scout to the all-star standard I'm not I can't say I'm going for the bullseye and trying to get the next Tom Brady because you're waiting 25 30 40 years and probably still waiting after that so yeah. it's a it's a situation where you you know you've got to look at it and say can Kyler Murray help you in the NFL absolutely I don't think it hurts the Cardinals more than the fact that if they're like well we've got to play we've got to face these teams in the coming years so we need to be able to draft or free agency add players who are better up front than what we might have otherwise needed you know and and so that we can provide him what he needs to thrive and i think yeah. that that's where you kind of go there It doesn't just because just because the environment is as such that it reveals the flaws in a very good player doesn't mean that player isn't very good. And, yeah. and I think that that's where we are with Murray. Um, so what was your first impression about having an added playoff matchup this year
1: in the NFL? Yeah, I mean, you know, I know there's been a lot of discussion in recent days, given how some of these games shaked out, given how, you know, the Eagles looked, given how the Steelers looked, Do we need the seven seeds? I still kind of like it. You know, it's more football. It's more an opportunity for our team to sort of make a run, to shock the world. You know, I saw a comparison in recent days to, oh well, you know, nobody really liked the the expanded, you know, 64 team format for March Madness. You know, then we saw 15 beat a two. We finally saw 16 beat a one. Like that opportunity to root for the underdog and see the underdog win. That's something that we like. You know, that's something that we love about sports. And I think people might have this idea that you don't need seven teams, 14 teams. That just basically means it's the final week of the season. When we get that first seven that beats a two, everybody's going to fall in love with it. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it's more football. I mean, I'm always of the mind that more football is better than less. And so I was a fan of it. Well, that's cool.
0: And I think that's a good point because, you know, now I, someone could kind of argue, well, the NCAA has far more teams than the NFL. So the competitive that you know they needed to add more because because right. really there's better there's a lot better teams that don't even get a remote shot um, and you could say the same thing about college football if they wanted to go that route and do a tourney, which we know we've talked about for right. a long time in the NFL but the NFL does have parity and there is a a high degree of you know competition between the two between the teams where I can see why that works out just fine now I if just for the fun of it. I'll make the counter argument and say um, it sucks because now it basically enables owners or owners, basically who um, really just care about the money and not rather about building the team, can now just like say, "Well, we made the playoffs." You know, there's an extra two teams that can that can make it this each year in a way where before they couldn't. So now you know the onus isn't as much on them that they that they got in. You know, it's like. If the Cincinnati Bengals continue to be the Cincinnati Bengals, now I don't think they will because you look at that offense and where direction they're going. But if they continue to be what they've been in the past, and there's a potential for that to happen, I mean, um, still, they could be an offense without a defense. They could be still players without an offensive line, all of that. Um, You know, this could be a team where, you know, they're one and done. And Mike Brown, you know, the the Brown family is pretty happy about what – what that is, because they got in and now fans aren't yep. on their they, they might have the attitude that well fans aren't gonna be on our case anymore, even if they are, because they'd probably blurt that out somewhere in some weird situation. But you know, that's the way that's the way it goes. Um so the Buccaneers offense. I know this sounds like a weird question, but you know, watching them was it you know, it could just be that again they faced the Eagles and the Eagles didn't look that great. But I wonder when I watch them lose, you know, Leonard Fournette. I watch them, you know, they've lost, you know, multiple receivers to injury. Some they have they had so much great talent and you don't want to lose that talent, but can it be can the loss of those key talents and then bringing out, you know, guys like Giovanni Bernard who's an excellent pass receiver or, you know, you know, use more of your tight end, you know, that kind of thing. Can it give a little more focus to an offense and almost be in addition by subtraction in terms of the way the team goes? Or am I just going way too far with this? Cause I'm just trying to theorize something in the off season.
1: I don't think you're going too far with it. It's always been, you know, with Tom Brady, with covering Tom Brady, honestly, first as a fan and then as an analyst, you know, there was a big bugaboo during the Randy Moss, West Welker era of, He's focused too much on Randy Moss. He's focused too much on Wes Welker. We need to get back to where Tom Brady was great when his favorite receiver was the open receiver. And I think in getting ready for that game against the Eagles, sort of studying Tampa Bay, sort of conceptually without, you know, Godwin, without Antonio Brown, there was a thought in my mind that there will get back to his favorite receiver is just going to be the open guy. He's just going to take – you know whether it's Perryman, whether it's Johnson, whether it's you know Bernard out of the backfield, whatever it is, that's where his eyes going to go. He doesn't have that crutch of, oh, I know where AB is going to be or I know where Godwin's going to be. And he does still have that to a certain extent on third and seventy. He might look at Gronk, he might look at Evans, but it's forced him to sort of get back to that that foundational concept of his as an NFL quarterback, which is the guy that's open is my best read. The guy that's open is my favorite receiver. And so I think when you have some instances like that, where a quarterback has to read things out, see the field and make the right decision and not just lock in on a favorite target. I think there's a benefit to that. I think we saw something similar with Matthew Stafford. I think Stafford sort of developed a little bit more. And we've talked about this as a quarterback when he didn't have Calvin Johnson to just throw to triple coverage into. Right. Like, yeah. There, there are some benefits. I know there's a discussion, certainly in Philadelphia, about you've got to target Defonta Smith more. There's a similar discussion up in New England right now. They need to find Matt, jo- Matt Jones' banky. Dante Karnecchia, their former offensive line coach, has made that argument. But I also think there's some benefit, and in this case, some truth to just having the the frame of mind to attack the open guy and throw to him.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's I, – I, I think that there's a good – part of that because when you have an Antonio Brown you know and when you know you're gonna target him in a certain way probably more often than not you may feel like you want to force the ball to a Chris Godwin in situations right. where that it becomes a little bit more predictable because you have you've thrown the ball to him the fifth time in the quarter on a screen pass it might be working right. now when it's working you just keep going to it so I understand that so it it I would say it's helpful from the standpoint that um, that with you know with God he's pretty versatile. So I would kind of say that you wouldn't want to. I I would say that's not a subtraction, an addition by subtraction. But maybe with Fournette, you know, you you look at that run game and and I think that you know with you bring Vaughn in, who is kind of I don't wouldn't call him an emerging player, but he's in he's a player that was kind of underrated coming out of school, hasn't done much early on, and it seems like he's starting to, you know, he's getting a little bit of production and showing a little bit more. Um, But you've got a guy in Bernard who can really catch and who can give you a lot more versatility in that passing game in a way that, as good as Fournette has been as a receiver, I think Bernard's conceptually gives you a little bit more Than what even Fournette does, so I don't know. It's it it could be that it could just be that teams don't know, and I think this is the really the probably the right answer, is opposing teams don't know who Tom Brady's going to be going to now. They don't really under they don't have a pattern anymore because they've watched all this tape with all the with with you know other players in there, Fournette and and Godwin mainly, and a little bit of Brown, and they can't prepare as well, because they don't know who's got what role as much or what little wrinkles they use with those different players that the team practices regularly. So yeah, you know, that's to me a little bit more about it. I think it's more just, it's, it's new. So what advice or feedback would you give to veteran beat writers if they were open to hearing from it? Guys our age and older.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think an interesting direction that beat writers can take their coverage is into the, and certainly this comes from an X's and O's guy into the realm of technique. Like I, I know, you know, you, you ask a Devin McCourty, you ask, a, you know, Micah Hyde, they're not going to tell you what coverages they want to play. They're not going to tell you things like that, but you know, they, they make a big play in the game. Talk about the technique, like the, how the, how they did it. Like, take Micah Hyde's interception of Mac Jones from Saturday night. Like, how is he reading things? How is he viewing things? And some guys got into that, you know, because they got him to basically say he didn't think Jones was going to throw it. So then, you know, he had to bail late and cover that ground. But, you know, technique on route running, technique on coverage, like asking a corner, like, yeah, I saw all that play. You get the interception. You jammed him with your inside arm versus your outside zone. um, like, why did you do that? And you could get into the release game off the line of scrimmage and how corners are sometimes trying to force you based on a coverage, you know, force him to take an outside release. Like on that, you know, five cougar, five trap, whatever coverage where that outside corner makes that pinwheel technique. You're forcing that outside release to then turn in such a way that you open to the outside, make it look like you're running man and running with him. And then you're trapping that inside receiver on that outbreak and route from the slot. Get into technique a little bit. You know, because I, I think we've seen this sort of X's and O's revolution or evolution of coverage, right, where now every team that at the Athletic or USA Today or whatever, they've got people for every team that are do breaking stuff down from an X's and O standpoint. You know, so now you've funneled it here. Funnel it even narrower, right? Get into the technique, like how these guys are doing things, what they're doing, and then tie it together with, you know, the X's and O's stuff. I mean, there's some great work that could be done, like – you get a big play, you talk to the guy in the locker room about the technique, and then that leads you to the coverage and that leads you to tell the full picture. Because it's one thing to say, yeah, he was in cover three and he made the interception. It's another thing to say he was in cover three. These were his read steps. This is why he broke on it. This is what he saw. You know, tell the story from the athlete's perspective through the lens of technique.
0: Yeah, and that's I think that's always a great jumping off point. And you get the you actually get players who want to engage with you at that point because they want to yep. talk shop. Now you know, certain certain veteran journalists would probably give some pushback and say, "Yeah, that's nice, but my editors want stories about the people in the game, not so much about." And that's about the, that's a way to the tell the part part story, of,
1: people. Yeah, yeah it I mean, can that's be. The way I look at it. I,
0: I think it is. I think it is too. But if they want to get more personal and they want to talk about how guys feel about things that hasn't to do with football and then try and meld that with football. I understand how you want to create narratives like that. It is entertaining reads and, and it is a big segment who wants to know more about what's behind the player and Hollywood eyes, what's going on with what the player does. That's all fine and good. But I would say this, um, I would tell them to take a diversity and inclusion course outside of their own newspaper or their entity and, and get into depth and then, and combine that with then also not just going when they learn about new players for the first time, especially when they go to the senior bowl or the hula bowl or the East West shrine game, that instead of going there and not knowing anything about them and then just making general observations about them, like, Oh, you're articulate. Oh, you know, are you the first person to graduate from school? Um, in your family, like asking questions that just make assumptions based on the appearance of the player, which happens a lot. Um, you know, you actually, and and turning off that player because that player may have, that player may be like the only kid in their family who's an athlete. That kid might be a Jonathan Taylor, you know, yeah. who, you know, turned down Harvard to go to Wisconsin, you know, or a Joshua Dobbs who who. who basically could probably build an airplane or a spaceship for you, you you know? And so instead of turning them off because it shows that you made assumptions about who they were, um, you know, and asking dumb questions like that, because you're from a generation that has too many layers of bullshit stuffed into you in a way that now that it's passed you by, you need to stay current. And part of that is to, I think, take take some extra courses, learn how to ask questions. Maybe you need to spend some extra time now that you've made it. You need to spend some extra time you know, talking to recruiting directors. Maybe yeah. you should call up some recruiting directors and say, hey, I'm going to the Senior Bowl this week. Your kids, Your kid's going to be there. What are some things I should ask him about? What are some yeah. things that are interesting about him? Tell me about him. Tell me about you know, where he came from, what his deal is. And, and you probably get things that you'd have a jumping off point so that when you ask the kid, and then there's some things that you might go, I'm going to meet this kid once, you know, let me see if research and see if this has been talked about anywhere so that I just don't hit him with, you know, so tell me about how your, how your mom was like being pimped out in your house by a crack dealer. You know, right. maybe that's not the first question you want to ask an individual. You, right. you know, the when Hyatt. they're here on their yeah, when they're on their uh, you know celebrating the fact that they're about to get drafted by a professional league and that the work that they've put in is they're at the zenith, and now you're going to ask them about this. You know, you know there are certain times where confrontational can work, and maybe people want to do that type of thing. But I think a lot of it is is that you know people learn how to write. They learn how to, but they learn how to ask questions from their peers, just in the same way that we could look at some cops. Some cops learn very well um, with training with their their mentors on the street. Some of them learn really bad habits and learn to be afraid of some of the very people they serve. So that's my my thought for the day with that. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, I was watching... I was watching and Ely, who's like uh, a running back out of Ole Miss. I really liked what I saw from him. He's kind of a scat back type. And for people who often ask me, what's a scat back? To me, I define it as kind of a smaller player in profile who's small and quick, who is going to be used on plays that they mostly try to get him into space as quickly as possible, where he's not going to have to do as much running behind schemed blocking, where he's like trying to... Manipulated defender to go to a certain hole, like zone plays or certain gap plays. It's more draw plays, screen plays, toss plays, getting him in an open space as soon as possible where he could leverage his quickness and he can make multiple people miss um, and then use him in, in the passing game as well um, where they can free him up there. And to me, that's a scat back. Um, yeah. So, you know, are we about to see... But you know what I've noticed is that we've had some data recently. I saw Jay Moore bring up where I think like the pat the average passing yardage or EPA of certain things is lower than it's been in recent years. And Jay yep. Moyer jumped to the conclusion, my man, uh, as he would, as a fellow running back fan in arms would say, um, "Strap it up because we're about to see a change where people are going to pound the ball." You know, yeah. are we about to see the scat back era we were supposed to see kind of go the way of the JerMichael Finley era, where we were going to see the rise of the hybrid tight end, and every every pot in every NFL town was going to have themselves a hybrid tight end in it who was going to be like JerMichael Finley, or is the real point can we stop trying to create trends because the cycle's so short lived in the NFL that once you pinpoint how the best teams cultivate an edge. There's other teams that are now going a different route to, to go about and do this.
1: Yeah, I think it's more of that. And that's kind of what I was alluding to earlier. Like the, the trend cycle, the life cycle of concepts and personnel concepts and things like that, it's very short. I mean, because something works, every team copies it the next year, every defense then has an answer for it, and the process begins anew. You might get like a two-year cycle out of something. And then you've got to go in a different direction. And so, in, even in that two year cycle, you get teams that decide we're going to go in a completely different direction. And sort of, you're getting small and light, we're getting big and heavy. Like, I, I think it's very hard in a game that is always evolving to say the trends are going to stick for extended periods of time. And while on a global scale, yes, this is a passing league and things like that, it hasn't always been a passing league. And the rule changes over the past couple of years might have moved it in one direction. But as those numbers have pointed out, yards per game have dipped, like things have dipped for the first time in like eight, nine years. We might actually be a, seeing a little bit of a swing back and it will keep going back and forth. So, you know, I, I just think it's smart to sort of caution it or take a more muted approach to this idea that, oh, this is going to be the next big trend that's going to last for a decade. It might. It might not.
0: Yeah, and I think every team tries to get themselves – a range of players anyway so yeah every team tries to have a, sca- a, a scat back maybe he's not the number one priority yeah you know he might not but be- you need somebody up third and eight yeah exactly so you're always going to you know people who have jerry on Ely's talents are always going to have a job it just depends whether he's going to get placed in an not op- in a position like austin eckler you know or if you would say that alvin kamara is uh is more of a hybrid player who's a little bit more scat back, but he can do damage between the tackles at a high level, you know, that, you know, or Christian McCaffrey, who, uh, again, I think is far more than a scat back, but he's, he's basically a scat back who's so darn good that he can run between the tackles. Right. with, With just unbelievable skill and he doesn't need to be a power guy to do it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you on all of that. So, Talk to me about just from a scouting perspective to help make people better at scouting the passing game. What are some what's a rule or some rules of zone coverage or route running? <coughs> Excuse me. Bless you. Thank you. What are some rules of scouting or um you know, or of zone coverage or route running that will make people better at scouting the passing game, just from a, a casual standpoint?
1: Yeah, I mean I'm not so much sure it's like a rule of route running. But I do think it's important to remember that, you know, I'm holding up for people watching the news channel. This is a page from Bruce Arians' playbook. And the the play is called Gun Right Box FMO 52 Poco Pin. And the X receiver has, by my count, even though he's asked to run what they call their basic route, he has one, two, three, four, five variations that he can run on this route based upon the coverage. And so I think it's always important to remember, like when you start getting into route running for receivers, you know, there will be adjustments upon adjustments, sometimes at the college level, but certainly at the next level where they have to tie their feet to their eyes, to their mind. And it's not just as simple as go run a post route and get open. Sometimes it might be, but more often than not, it's, Hey, you're running this basic route on this play. But if we get a side adjustment, your side adjustment sink pop. If we get this coverage, you're running the basic, which is a sort of inside release to a dig route. But if we get this coverage, you run that inside release to a dig, but check up and break outside. If we get this coverage, a Tampa two look, you attack that middle of the field pole runner, then check up in front of him. And so receivers are being asked to do more from a mental perspective then we have seen sort of in the say t- 20 years ago, 10 years ago, eight years ago, because there are adjustments upon adjustments. And so they have to tie their feet to their eyes, to their mind. And it's important to keep that in mind because, you know, you want somebody that can certainly get open on a go route. You want somebody that can certainly get open on a slant to beat press alignment. We'll talk about that guy a little bit later, but I think remembering that they are reading things out as they are running these routes that's important because if you're seeing somebody if you're studying a receiver it seems like man he and his quarterback aren't on the same page sometimes it's not the quarterback's fault you know sometimes he's reading things the wrong way and you start thinking about landing spots you think start thinking about places like Tampa Bay with the Buccaneers and Arians or New England with what they do in a route conversion and route adjustment standpoint you have to m- remember that there is a mental side to playing the receiver position right now that's important to pick up on when you're doing these evaluations. Yeah. And that's going to take time for a lot of guys who are superb
0: talents, who even guys who are smart, but may have never encountered a system like that and might have a stumbling block in terms of their adjustment period. You know, it might take a little bit of time. I'll give you a simple one that I watched um, this week. And it was funny because I was, I just posted a boiler room on Danny gray, the SMU wide receiver, who is um, a juke was like a juco star who wound up at SMU. And he's had a pretty darn good season. He's like 6'3", 198. He, you know, he can he can run pretty well. He's very good after the catch. Well, one of the first plays of the games that I watched interest me enough that I tried to do a video on it and then I was like it's too subtle, I can't do it. Like I and but it was basically a slant where he runs the slant, and the way I saw it at first, it looks like he turns his eyes to the quarterback out of his break, and then the linebacker had dropped back to enough depth that he had to run to the next window. And then I could have sworn I saw the quarterback kind of bring the ball back, but it was like that delayed response. You know, like if someone, like, if you've seen someone get slapped, in like so they get in an argument and like in a fight, like in a bar and someone yep. gets slapped in the face or something. And the person who gets slapped is like a beat late to react to what actually happened to them. And then they bring their hand up, you know, after they've already been hit, it was kind of like the quarterback brought his hand up to throw just after that break point and saw that the break point was covered. Um, right. So, and then he ended up throwing to the next window, but it was so subtle that I felt like that was what was going on, but I couldn't give enough there wasn't enough visual evidence to support it, so I just abandoned right. it. But later in the game, the last play of the game for the for SMU, they were in the game, it was 2724 against Memphis, 143 left, and Danny Gray runs a dig route. And he runs the dig route, and when he breaks, um he breaks into an what looks like open space between a triangle of defenders and the quarterback delivers the ball and it's undercut by the flat defender for a game-ending interception. And the quarterback's dejected. And you're looking at that and I thought, looked at the the coverage and what the receiver did, and this is a very simple thing to remember, is that there is a rule where that you don't, as a receiver, you don't show your eyes to the quarterback until you have gone past the flat defender who can buzz underneath the route. And what he had done is he had turned his eyes immediately after the break and began to settle. And when you turn your eyes back to the quarterback out of a break on a zone route, it signals to the quarterback that he should throw the ball two steps, maybe two to three steps to the side of where you broke to. And that's it. And you should settle there. And he he didn't and the quarterback was waiting for him to turn his eyes. So when you when I looked at it back, you saw that Gray, if if Gray basically the quarterback had made his look to the safety in the middle of the field, went to the right sideline, and Gray was basically his third read. And when Gray showed his eyes, the quarterback then began his throw. If 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 he had like slid over a few more steps inside that and turned his eyes, then Gray would have thrown it there. Or if the rush had come. Great, or the quarterback would have had to go, on, go somewhere else. But the point being is that if there are times that receivers turn their eyes too early in zone and signal the quarterback that they are open because the quarterback is not looking at the underneath defenders, they're looking at the open space in zone, or they're looking at the the, the, the receiver themselves. And I think that if you understand that, you get the you get an idea of sometimes where it's not so much as the quarterback's fault as much as it is the receiver you know, signaling too early that they're open and not realizing that they, that they aren't.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm furiously, and I just remembered it's upstairs, but a Patriots playbook has that in on their juke series where do not show your eyes until you are ready for the ball. And if you show your eyes early, you're getting yourself into trouble. You're getting the quarterback into trouble. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great point about receivers and routes. And it's sort of ties into what I would say, because, if you're running a route that has three different adjustments, you're still not supposed to show your eyes until you're ready with your final route. And if you show them early, cause you're thinking, Oh, I'll sell them on this. You're really selling yourself for failure. What are your thoughts on Mike McCarthy? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit offline on, on Sunday. Yeah. Um, it, It's uh. I understand the inclination to sort of bury him right now. And and I get that. Um, And I do think that it would not surprise me in the coming hours that Mike McCarthy is shown the door by Jerry Jones. I think I was on a radio show, a show I do often down in Arkansas earlier this morning and the host who I love JB talked about how McCarthy seemed very sort of mature in the aftermath of that game. And I was kind of like, yeah, he was mature in the aftermath, but let's see what Jerry does 72 hours out, you know, 96 hours out. That might be when he sort of has the sort of reaction, the snap reaction of, you know, Dan Quinn's getting interviews. Kellen Moore's getting interviews. I've clearly hired the wrong guy. Mike McCarthy, you got to go. That might happen. Um, I, I think his path to a new job, the sort of war room that he built, how he went about, doing that and sort of selling everybody on oh, I'm, I'm going in on analytics. I'm studying all this stuff. I'm building this database and all that stuff. There's this sort of, you know, 33rd staff or whatever, a little weird if you ask me. And so, you know, do I think he should get fired? No. Do I think he's a great head coach? He's had some moments, obviously. Um, But just, just a strange sort of circumstance all around.
0: Yeah. I think the thing that kind of bugs me Um, you know, I would say the thing that bugs me is that I saw in the media that day that, uh, there was a tweet basically talking about how after he got the job, they asked him about him saying he watched every play of every NFL game or something, or the Cowboys, every play of the Cowboys. And he said, yeah, I lied about that. Yeah. You know? I lie. And he said, I lied to Jerry Jones about that. Like, literally said that. I don't know. if Is it important that he watched every play of the Cowboys? No. Not at all. Not at all. Is it stupid to say that you, or to admit that you lied to your, to, to you know, the owner of the team? Yeah. I think the fact that, I think the fact that you would go and, and basically, you, you know, that you would just say that I, th- you know, maybe the fact that he felt pinned in the corner, perhaps, I don't know, but I, I just think the fact that he would lie about it and then he would admit that he lied about it as if Jerry Jones, isn't going to see that just, right. to me, there's something off about that person as a candidate. And it just shows me that, you know, the whole idea that they are operating a lemonade stand, you know, in, right. in these NFL teams, in terms of the way some of the owners do this stuff, is you know I, that's where it just kind of rubs me the wrong way. It just tells me that the fundamental process for hiring these these coaches is flawed. um Yeah, absolutely, on a great level. So, who's a player you faded from the NFL scene who you thought was on the verge of big things, maybe in recent years and maybe in the past two to three years? They've they just kind of faded away, and you're like, "Whatever happened to that guy?" For me, it's like Paul Richardson. He was a Seattle Seahawks receiver. Uh, there were on a on like a fantasy point. We'll use fantasy points in this level on a fantasy points per attempt basis. He was up there with like peak Antonio Brown for like a couple of seasons. He just wasn't used on a high on the you know with the as great a volume due to some injuries. But when he was with there with Russell Wilson. He probably made some of the most spectacular catches I've seen in the past ten years, um, and he was so fast. He was so good after the catch, and I just thought he's gonna he's gonna either wind up being what Tyler Lockett wound up being, or he's gonna wind up being a free agent somewhere else and getting the shot to be what Tyler Lockett is. Um, and it, he got injury, he got hurt, and next thing you know, he's you know he's basically out of Washington, you know, and he hasn't played since he's 29 years old and out of the league. So is there a player like
1: that for you? Um, more recently, Philip Lindsay, uh, I was, you know, seeing what he did his first two years in Denver, you know, back to back thousand yard rushing seasons. You thought, man, this guy's going to be special. He's going to be fantastic. He's like, you know, the new outside zone wide zone kind of back, but you know, now he's bounced around two different teams this year, Houston and Miami. You know, I, I thought we'd see a, a bit more of an extended career from Phillip Lindsay. And so to see the sort of, you know, what's happened after those first two seasons, you know, that's one name that comes to mind. Another one, and this is going back a little bit further, you know, there was a tight end like in like I think fifteen or sixteen, had over a thousand yards receiving for a bad team, made it to a Pro Bowl. Gary Barnage. Remember Gary Barnage yeah. for the Browns? Yeah, He had that year where he caught, like, he was targeted 125 times, 79 receptions, 1,043 yards, nine touchdowns. The next year, started all 16 games for Cleveland, you know, 600 yards receiving, and then he was out of the league. And I know he had some injuries, but I thought that guy was going to be like, man, we got another great young tight end in, in the AFC. Like, he's going to be, you know, the sort of new wave tight end, guy that can move around a little bit just faded away almost instantly.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great one. So um, Kevin, who's a, an avid listener, said something I've heard you guys mention on podcasts and I've heard you mention, Matt, in the RSP site is that there's a benefit for young quarterbacks to balance game action with sitting and learning and that we frequently brought use the example of Drew Brees in this context and his development. And something he was curious about is whether the timing of Jimmy Garoppolo's injuries this year meant the 49ers kind of lucked into an ideal, at least a better-than-average development track for Trey Lance. He got a start, he got several weeks to learn, and then improved before getting another start. Do you think that they lucked into this by having a dynamic where Lance got spot time as a as a starter?
1: I think so. I mean, I I think there's a benefit to, you know, getting some opportunities on the field, but also perhaps getting some opportunities to sit, catch your breath and observe. I mean, taking it from the sort of flip side, I'm reminded of his rookie season, Josh Allen dealt with a couple of injuries and he had to sit down for a little bit. And I think that's sometimes important for a young quarterback to take a step back, catch your breath, go through the week to week process where, you know, you're not going to be the guy, but observe how somebody else, you know, was going about doing it. Another guy, Daniel Jones, who, you know, did it start out as the starter and was in and out of the lineup with Eli still there. You know, we had a couple of weeks where he got to watch how Eli went about game preparation. So to, to learn how to do it from that perspective for Lance, you know, obviously he started out on the bench. so We got to see how Jimmy Garoppolo would handle himself and get ready to prepare for a game. Then he had an opportunity to go do it. Then he had an opportunity to go sit again. Then he had another opportunity to go do it. And I thought with respect to Lance, what he showed in that game, albeit against the Houston Texans, was a world of growth looking back to and taking a step back and looking at his first start against Arizona. So I think, to Kevin's point, there is something to be gained from, yeah, here's an opportunity to go play. Here's an opportunity to sort of sit and learn. Now, of course, every quarterback's different. No two quarterbacks are the same. You know, you have to strike that balance of getting them on the field to get those live game reps versus letting them take that step back. But I think the Niners sort of lucked into a little bit of both worlds here with Garoppolo's injuries and getting Lance in and out of lineup a couple of times.
0: Yeah, and I think that Lance was at that point in his career where when he was on the field at North Dakota State, we profiled very much that he was in an NFL level offense. And he had to do a lot of things that people maybe overlooked about his game to say that he wasn't an NFL ready quarterback. Um, But at the same time, he's had very limited exposure to playing in college football. Um, He's, you know, he had basically one season and a game. And so he was at, you could say maybe in hindsight, he was at that in-between stage where his experiences in an offense were NFL ready. But his, um, the amount of experience that he actually had in terms of playing time maybe meant that he needed a little more seasoning. So giving him a chance to sit and observe, but also get some playing time, it was, I think it prevented him from getting overwhelmed. Um, And I think that might've happened to him if they didn't have, because I think if they had all their pieces, the 49ers had all their weapons in place all the time. I think he probably would have had a lower chance of getting overwhelmed. He might've had some bad days, but they wouldn't have been like soul crushing But, you know, you lose, you lose Kittle for a while, you know, you, you know, you have some, you know, you've got Ayuk on the bench, you're trying to find your way at wide receiver a little bit still for what, for a variety of reasons, you know, the running games banged up, that could have been, you know, that you could see how a player could quickly get overwhelmed in that scenario. And then you know they would need to be on the bench if they were starting every week. They might say, "Yeah, we got to put them aside." So I think in a way, yeah, he, I think they did luck into that. Um. So what's a? It's a big part of football analysis that you don't think most people will ever truly grasp.
1: Yeah, I mean it's sort of similar to what I talked about earlier the the technique side, the, you know, the nuts and bolts of, you know, how a receiver runs a route, how a corner plays a certain technique. You know, I, I think that's the hard part of it to sort of understand, like, you know, and again, we're, we're talking about really sort of drilling down here, like getting from, oh, here's quarters coverage for deep in the secondary to here's how defensive backs will read out pattern match cover four from a technical standpoint, why they might play one foot up instead of the other, what their drop steps might be like, or for an offensive lineman, what their kick steps might be the different moves that they'll make the different pass Russian moves that people will make. Like that's when you're really sort of drilling down to it. That will sort of be sort of tough to understand. I mean, I think big picture, I know the one you're going to talk about is a very good one. The sort of, you know, 50,000 feet. Look at things. That's a very good one. And I think another thing to sort of all for all the great things that, that Madden has done in terms of the, the video game here in terms of opening people up to concepts one of the drawbacks has been removing the power of the locker room you know these aren't just names on a spreadsheet or on a, a video game screen where oh yeah you know what i can make my roster better by trading my quarterback like sure that might work on paper but the dynamic and in the interpersonal relationships that are built inside that locker room they don't get sort of captured by that you know, by Madden, by spreadsheets, by whatever. It's an emotional game. You're you're going to play a emotion, an emotional physical game with with your 51 brothers, so to speak. You see a video of, you know, the San Francisco 49ers walking out of the locker room where they got Kodiak on the boombox and they've got the strength and conditioning coach and eyes it on his shoulder, and that's a team that is certainly. Forge that re- those relationships interestingly enough in a year where they drafted a quarterback Trey Lance, but Jimmy Garoppolo is still being the guy like the, the, the strengths in that locker room is something that, you know, for the, for the sort of average fan, like in even analysis from, you know, a, a standpoint like that, you might not be able to capture beat writers can t- certainly tap into that. And people might be able to put some stories together that speak to that. But those locker room relationships are something that we just might not ever figure out, but they're so important.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, we can take that to an even more in a crazier level and say stay in San Francisco and go back about 30, 40 years because around that time they had who I think is the greatest quarterback who ever played in Joe Montana, but they also had a guy on paper who might have been better. you know. Yeah. Um, And you could see how that if someone was a paper pusher and didn't understand the dynamics of the game, how they would try to push Steve young into that situation earlier than they even did. And, and I think that that would have ruined that team in a sense, it would have been a very difficult thing to do. Steve young proved himself due to injury and then got the opportunity when, you know, at a certain point where you could see that that was going to be a tough decision. But if they had just said, "Steve Young's the future of our team," we would have known that as one of the great blunders of in NFL history, because Joe Montana would have gone somewhere else. Joe Montana probably would have been a New York Giant at that point. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, Bill Parcells probably would have said, "Yeah, you know, we love, you know, Hostetler and Rutledge and Sims and you know." I don't know. I'm I'm hypothesizing out of my lane at this point. At this, you know with this particular example, but the point being is that, you know, sometimes on paper you have to understand that, you know, as great as Montana was, you can look at a guy like Young and say, he can run, he's bigger, he's stronger, you know, he he's someone who, you know, has a good eye for, you know, certain things with the game. And you could say, let's develop him, you know, and we don't have to pay as much money to Montana, you know, but right. I don't think that, you know, Obviously, they were very wise in not going in that route, but I could see how a team would have screwed that up, as as odd as that seems. Um, I would say the other part of it is is you know, for me, a big part is a, is that improvement isn't linear, or rarely is. Deontay Johnson's a great example of that. He, dro- he led the league, I think, in drops last year as one of the leaders. Through like I think 10 or 11 weeks last year, or this year, he didn't drop the ball. Now, he had a He had a rough game in the playoffs and dropped some passes, apparently. So, you know, from that standpoint, you have to understand that he's worked at his game. You know, he's worked at his craft. He's brought in this whole idea of tracking the ball with tennis balls and having to develop a whole set of exercises that has worked very well for him tracking the football. Um, But there's a point where you have to gain comfort in your technique. You have to gain comfort in the concepts. And, you know, during the regular season, that may have been the step where he's made that development. But now it's the playoffs, and the playoffs can get you a little bit more distracted maybe. There are certain things that can happen where you can lose, you can lose some of that, um, what's been embedded in you a little bit because it's not embedded as strongly or as deeply as it has maybe – you you know that it it will be a year from now or two years from now. And so I, I look at this and when people say, "Oh, here he is dropping the ball. He's always dropped the ball." No, I mean he didn't he dropped the ball I think once or twice all year. So right. understand that it's not just like he improved it so now it's gone. You know, if you've, you know, you practice stuff and it's a it's that situation like I talk about music, I practice things And, you know, I'll practice something and I wish I could give an example, but, you know, I'll practice something and I get it to a speed that it feels like it's really under my fingers. And then I'll go play it in a situation that I'm not quite ready for. Like, I'm not nervous around my lesson teacher, who's a professional somewhere, but like maybe I've done a podcast and I haven't warmed up. And so I haven't gotten into the my fingers loose and I haven't gotten to the mindset or I just finished writing something that, you know, writing a blog post and talking about something completely different than playing a diminished pattern on a, on a bass, or, or playing some chromatic alteration pattern on a saxophone all the way up and down the horn. And then I go and without warm, really properly being warmed up or getting my mind in that mindset, I screw up and then I'm like frozen and I can't really figure out what I'm doing. And I'm going, how come I like, I'm not even like, I'm blanking out trying to do this when like I've spent literally 12, 13, 14, 20 hours, 30 hours playing this. And I realize it's just, it's just still not under my fingers yet. And it's right. the same thing with a guy like Deontay Johnson. Maybe he screwed up in a certain situation. Maybe the warm up wasn't quite there for him. Maybe that, you know, whatever the schedule was, he wasn't able to do what he normally did. And it just completely threw him off. So that's something that I would point out to people. Um, one last football question Who's a prospect of note that you've watched recently?
1: Um, I know we talked about him earlier, but I haven't been doing a ton of prospect work with the playoffs, but seeing the buzz building for Drake London sent me back to watch him a couple of times um, over this past weekend. And I know I talked about him favorably earlier. I'm going to reiterate the excitement that I'm starting to see on the timeline and share it in that. I know he's going to get tagged as the contested catch guy. I know there's going to be some concerns about that. But when you see him beating press alignment, when you see him getting separation on routes, when you see him attack in the middle of the field and underneath, I think he's – he's more than just that contested catch guy. And, you know, I was having a discussion with some people, you know, in this industry that do sort of similar work today. And we were sort of revisiting that 2019 draft class where, for example, I loved Kelvin Harmon. I loved Kelvin Harmon that year. Uh, And where's Kelvin Harmon right now? Um, and, And you see some of the sort of contested catch receivers that might have scared some people off you know, Nikhil Brown, for example, I mean, Nikhil Harry, excuse me, you know, that might scare some people off in some corners of the evaluation space that might sour people on a Drake London. But I think there's a lot more to his game when you start diving in. And so, you know, I, I was very wary. I can still see why some people might be wary, but I remain a fan.
0: Yeah, I'm, I like Drake London and I haven't done anything on him per se for people to look at, but, you know, it's going to change. My my board's going to change quite a bit in the coming weeks because, you know, I'm still, I I pretty much have made my first pass through all but about a dozen wide receivers, and I'm going to then make a second and third pass of these guys in the next six to eight weeks. And uh, Drake London's at the top of my board. Um, yeah. So I didn't... I saw him more as a Michael Pittman than I saw him as a um, Nikhil Harry um, from that perspective. And, you know, it's convenient that they both went to SEC, uh, USC, and that they, uh, you know, but, and they've been used in a similar role, you know, so, but I think he's, I think it fits, you know, what he, a lot of what he does. And there's some differences that I think make him stand out too. Is he? But there are also guys on my list who I think could easily overtake him. You know, and, you know, some of them would include guys like Justin Ross, Chris Olave, you know, Jahan Dotson. You know, those are guys that come to mind immediately. There's more. But a guy that I watched who also is near that tier or in that tier, and I'm going to finish watching him today, is Dontario Drummond out of Ole Miss. Mm -hmm. I like Dontario Drummond. He's 6 feet, 215 pounds. And... What I like about him the most is his tracking of the football. He's he's probably the best that I've seen in this class at fully extending for the ball and being able to do it underhand or overhand and being able to secure that and do it with a variety of routes where you either have to turn away, um, you know, make the late turn on a fade route, or you're on the run and you have to catch a, a ball like on the run with the ball located low and away at your knees and, and continue to maintain your balance. He can dig out throws, but he can also make that awkward catch and stay on the move. And you want this guy with the ball in his hand in – I would say you want him the ball in his hand in a phone booth because he'll get out of that phone booth. Um, he might bust out through a window or he might just, he might just avoid getting touched in there somehow – Um, and still come emerge out the front door. I mean, he is very good with his hips being able to adjust. He has that curvy linear movement to kind of bend away from players. And he has a really great feel of knowing when to work across the field and when to just get straight downhill and he will break tackles. He'll step over you through you as a good stiff arm, good pad level, um, some of the route run, it's going to take him some time with the route running because you look at Ole Miss's offense and I think that yeah. the the zone concepts of like really becoming a good zone and man-to-man route running are going to be a little more advanced for him in the NFL compared to what he's doing at Ole Miss. A lot of the routes they put him on are like, fake like you're blocking as an H-back and then turn back and look and Matt Corral's going to hit you in the open seam. Or they're crossing routes or there's... You know, there are things like that, or their back shoulders. But as a player with what he does, with what he knows right now, I'm very enthused about what he is. He's not the best technician in this class, but I think as a, a player with a ball in his hands, there aren't many better. I'll put, I'll put it that way. And um, so I, I'm, I think that he's a guy that if he shows that he can grow, and the way that he shows techniques with catching the football, I think he can because most players I see who are high end technicians still can't figure out how to use their hands to catch the football. Like they do everything great and then they get to the point of like the most important thing, you know, or you know, and they can't do it. Or they, right. they struggle at certain areas of it. And it seems like Drummond's got all that down. It's it's what happens leading up to the catch point that is where he's gonna have to continue to work at it. So all right, we've got you know, a little bit of time left and I, the first, you know, to yesterday I posted something on Twitter. I was watching, I was kind of listening to Joe Rogan's podcast with some, some people that I thought were interesting guests um, in recent weeks or recent weeks of me doing it. These guys have been on year, maybe yeah. even a year or two ago, but one was David Blaine. And then I ran into, you know, and you know how YouTube does and puts you down a rabbit hole of stuff. So one of the videos suggested was like a motivational video that involved Joe Rogan. And it was basically the first seven minutes of it was just talking about being in a place where, you know, you feel like you were in prison, like you were, you've, you put yourself into a jail in your life. Like you were, you know, you're in your early twenties. You maybe had certain dreams of doing something or you didn't know what you wanted to do and life came at you you know you met the person you wanted to marry you know you had children um or you got into a career and a job that was well paying or the relationship and the job happened and next thing you know you're in a career that you really don't want to be in and you're living this life of quiet desperation and you know how do you get out of that and he gave he was given advice about it about how Make sure, you know, a lot of people who are living that life of quiet desperation, they're in debt, they have certain commitments or they're just in, or maybe it's just the commitment is debt and they, they can't change their life. And they live for just those 10 minutes of sitting on in the, in the bathroom stall with their cell phone or a smoke break or lunch, you know, or late night after everybody's gone to bed, playing a video game or Something of that nature. And I really connected with what he was saying. Um, because, and I posted it on my on Twitter, the link, you can find it on my timeline from, you know, the 18th. Um, and because I felt that way. I felt trapped. Like I I was trying to keep my options open. The next thing I knew, my option I had like, you know, life does that. You have to you wind up closing yourself off because of the decision, the path that you do take. And I remember feeling like I lived for those moments of just being alone and not, and because I wasn't fulfilled in what I was doing and I was, I lived for those 15 minute increments and just felt trapped and it was soul crushing. And I felt everything he said. And then even when he talked about how to get out of that, you know, um, you know, what, you know, and for me, it was a, uh, the mindset of how to get out of that. For me, it was, I have, to, I have to make this seem like a career. Even if I'm in one career, I need to like find something I'm passionate about. And I need to water that and cultivate that daily. I need to like carve out time and make a commitment to it. And I need to treat it like this is the most important thing I do every day. Even if it's only for an hour. Even if it's only for two hours. Um, and I need to I need to kind of put you know, put a line in the sand and say, This is mine and I'm doing this. And if it has if it can only be three times a week, it's gonna be those three times a week, you know, because I don't you you don't wanna there's commitments that you've gotta hold up to, you know, especially if you got a family. But it's like and if you have a family, you've made a commitment that supersedes everything. So that's the first thing that I would say. But um, if your family is amenable to you wanting to make a change in your life, you know, they may say, I would say this too: be careful of what they say, because they may not understand the commitment. They may not understand the path you want to go down either. Right. Um, so you need to be open to the fact that you need to keep this a hobby for a while. Um, and even beyond where you think you want to push to be to make it more. But my point is, is that I remember what it was like to just be like, okay, if I have to get up at three in the morning to do this, to watch film for just two hours a day, that's what I have to do. If I have to save money, that's my own budgeted out, even if I'm only making coming home with $20 a week on average. I need, how many months do I need to save up so that I can get a hotel room for a week to to take wor- off work, to like take my computer and put it in a hotel room so that I can watch as many prospects as I can. How many hours is it going to take me to do that? 120? You're going to have to watch 120 hours worth of football in a week to do this? Well, what am I going to need to do to be able to do that? You know, you know, how am I going to get that done? You know, because I need to see whether I love this or not. You know, people will say, you know, I, t- I used to tell the story humorously and say I locked myself in a hotel room in Athens the first time I did this, and I and I worked for 129 hours that week. I logged it and I, and did nothing but get takeout, pretty much delivered to the hotel room door or delivery, and. I, I slept, like I took quick naps and had like three alarm clocks in, in my room to make sure that I woke my ass up to get this done because this was the only time I was going to be able to get it done to see if I could to do it. And, and, I, and part of it was to see if I, and I joked and said, I loved it. I thought I was going to hate it and I loved it. Um, but the fact of the matter is the planning of that had to be that way. It had to be like, I'm only bringing home this much money a week. I've been riding my bicycle to work because my car was repoed because I was in debt. You know, I nearly lost my house a few years before earlier. You know, and I knew I needed to get out of what I was in. And part of that, those things that happened weren't necessarily due to my financial irresponsibility as much as they were due. Some of it was that, um, but it was more due to some traumatic circumstances that occurred in my family where I tried to help out and it led to um, more things being me getting underwater in ways that were difficult. Um, and so I had to dig out of that. Um, so I was still digging out of that while I was doing all of this too. Um, so I felt trapped even in, in different respects that way. But the the point of the mat, the matter is, is that if you're on a path where you have, want to make a career out of the ashes of the old one, that mindset you take, you've got to plan in advance. You've got to understand what that's got to be. And you have to be so dogmatic about it. The idea that Joe Rogan saying, I loved when he said, listen, if you have one hour and it's in the middle of the night, you better be caffeinated and focused and ready to do- go because this is your only opportunity, you know, each day. Each day, that little bit of time is your only shot until you can carve out more time and get more time doing it. And that's how I felt. Like to me, this was like, this was me like being, and I'm, this is dramatic, I know, I'm probably melodramatic, but this was me being Andy Dufresne with the rock hammer. Every yep. day, my night was to live, I was living for how much I could carve out of the wall um each day and that kept me motivated every day to get to where I wanted to go and it really was a good 10 12 year process because the the goal was to do this full time, you know so it was literally that little bit and it started with getting up at working till two in the morning saying nope, I can't play video games anymore I, I you know I've got a video game thing I can't play I can't play video games I this episode of shows can't watch this television show anymore. I've got I've got to do this. You know, um, having you know, having a beer with a friend once once every couple of weeks, gotta cut that out too, because I gotta save money for a hotel room. You know, yeah. those types of things. And I and I think it's important for people to understand that if you part of understanding how to get there is you've got to make the commitment first. And that commitment, and you're going to get tested with that commitment over a long haul. So, and I think that's, in a way, that proves to the universe that that you're paying your dues to be ready for the next steps. You know, it, whether you want to call it planning or whether you want to call it what I just called it in that woo-woo sort of ethereal sort of way, it, I think it's a combination of both things. So I'm just curious, you know, you were in a. You've talked very much about you were in a soul crushing job. What has been your? What was your mindset at that time for how to make that big change? What were What were you thinking when you were like, I got to get out of this? How, you know, how do I get started on the thing that I'm going to do that I can broach the conversation that this is realistic for me to do?
1: Yeah, and and we've we've talked about this. We've talked you and I have on this show, we talked about a while back about how this sort of non-traditional path that you and I have taken, it's not an easy path. It's not this idea, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Well, there's work along the way and there might be failures along the way. I I think what was motivational for me, um, those moments of quiet desperation that that you talked about, that, that Rogan talked about, those can be a blessing and a curse. And, and for me, what I found near the end of my time practicing law is that when you live for those moments of quiet desperation, when you live for the elevator ride at the end of the day, when you could start to let the day wash off of you, when you live for watching television with your spouse, a significant other, when you live for playing with your kids, you start to place those moments on altars. And when they don't live up to your preconceived notion of how enjoyable they're going to be, then those moments of quiet desperation become painful as well. Yeah. And when you find yourself in that realm, when there's no relief, then you know that the big changes have to come. And I, I've, I, I've talked about this moment before. And I'll, I'll just bring it up again briefly. The moment where I knew it's over in terms of practice law was when my wife and I were with our son we, we had picked him up from from daycare and we had six to seven thirty to play with them to eat dinner and things like that. Then at 7 thirty you start the bedtime process. and you know my wife and I, my wife is upstairs on a deposition right now at this moment. She's a very good lawyer, um thankfully because it put me in a position where I could take that risk. But she's pregnant with our our daughter at the time. and she's on the floor crawling around playing with Owen, and I'm on the couch staring at my phone fearful of an email that might come. I didn't know it was going to come. I wasn't anticipating it. It was the mere thought of an email from a partner or another attorney that had me staring a foot in front of my face and ignoring 10 feet in front of my face, which is where the stuff that mattered was. And I found when the quiet desperation gets chipped away at when you have moments like that, when you should be, this is what you're living for. This is what gets you through the day. Survive. I used to tell myself every morning, survive in advance, survive the eight hours the nine hours to the 10 hours to advance to the end of the day. Those moments with our son, those moments with my wife. And when you start seeing the bleed in that eliminates those moments, you know, the big change has to happen. Now, was it easy? Absolutely not. Were there, sleepless nights. Absolutely. Um, were there moments laying on the couch in a fetal position with tears streaming down my face because I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to stick. Everybody else is better. The imposter syndrome that we've talked about before in the show. Absolutely. And those happen still to this day, more frequently than I might let on, um, online, but they still happen. It, it, it's not easy. But when my unique situation was such that I had Yes, a supportive, immediate and extended family. But I also didn't want to let them down. I didn't want to let their trust in me, that belief in, hey, you think you can do this? All right. We'll give this a shot. I got to make it work. So if that means saying yes to every podcast, big or small, if that means isolating myself for a while just to watch quarterback after quarterback, if that means, yeah, you've got a big job, stepping away from that and making nothing or being thankful for when a Google AdSense check comes in or take saying yes to every sort of opportunity that comes away, because it might be your last one, then you got to do it and you've got to make those sacrifices along the way. And so it's not an easy road. It's certainly not an easy road and there will be failures. There have been failures. There have been moments of darkness, but it, where I am right now, you know, I'm certainly a better person, husband, father, son, spouse for all of it and i think you know the 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 rogan thing that you sent me you know the 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 rogan thing that you're talking about you talked about the first seven minutes minute seven to eight were the one that hit me the most
0: yep because he
1: talked about how this life is temporary and it reminds me of something i said with our our friend matt Harmon when i was on his backyard banter podcast where i talked about you get one shot at this i wrote the book 17 drives life is one drive you get one drive or one game or one inning, whatever sports metaphor you want, you get one of them. And if you're going to live it in those moments of quiet desperation, which may at times look like a crutch or a foundation or, you know, something to prop you up when they start chipping away, then what's left. And so you've got to make the most of this, this one shot that you've got. And it's, it's not easy. It's never easy but it's worth it in a sense to, to give it that shot because if you feel yourself trapped, if you feel yourself longing for those moments when it's 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. at night and you can watch a sitcom or a movie or something with a loved one and you think and you're living your day from the moment you get up to the moment that workday ends looking forward to that and then something happens and you lose it, you know, the person you're going to watch it with, they're tired. They want to go to bed. The movie you want to watch, suddenly the streaming isn't working. You know, the video game you want to play, it has it needs a 32 gig update and you can't play it that night. And then everything you have put on this altar of meaningful happiness for this small window is gone. That's tough to come back from. That's something that I found. I would prop up those moments of quiet desperation. The, the stresses of the day would start to bleed into them and then I had no escape from it all. And you had to find to make a change. And so, you know, that's kind of my thoughts on it. I mean, I I have talked about it a ton. I'm always open to the others that are looking to make that switch to hit the DMs. Um, It's not easy. I'm thankful for for the change that I was able to make. And we've talked about it. We, we, We both sort of had support structures that enabled it. You're putting a lot on those people around you, which makes it more important that you sit down and do what you have to do to make it work if it's an hour a day two hours a day, 30 minutes a day, in the dead of night, make it work, find a way to reward the trust that those are putting you around you. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I'll add this is that you're also going,
0: I I found that, that when you head in the direction that you're passionate about, you head in the direction that you're willing to do the little things that are important, the ugly work of your job, that other people won't do Um, and you really embrace that. And if you're going in the right direction, I believe things open up for you. I I believe in that. I believe that things open up for you, but they may not open up for you in the way that you think because, and at first it may even seem disturbing or difficult or like it's a bigger challenge when it's actually a gift. That happened for me because I was in one relationship and there was a lot going on in that relationship where there was just a lot of difficulty. Unfortunately, I can't go into all of it, but I would say that, you know, my kids are adults at this point. And I would say that, you know, I I think I can say that they dealt with an abusive father. I wasn't their blood father. Their blood father was an abusive individual. Um, And a lot of what happened financially for us was an outgrowth of having to deal with that. Um, and that's what led us into where we were. And unfortunately, over time, while things got better um, financially and things looked like they were getting stable, um, the effect that it had on my partner, I think, was as such that it was difficult for our relationship to survive as a result of the effect that some of those things that happened to, with the kids um, and where she was at. I think it was difficult to survive, and there were other things I'm sure as there I know as well. But in a period of time, after I started the first RSP, within months of me starting the first RSP, my relationship ended. So you know, the kids and my family moved out. That was a huge thing. That was a big blow to me um, because you know this was this was my family, and we had done been through a lot. You know, a lot of good too. There was, a lot of, there was a lot of good to all of that. Um, and then with a month after that, my boss at my job, who had been at my company for 30 years, got laid off. And he told me that they were didn't want to lay me off, but they were going to change things because they didn't know, they wanted to restructure what was going on. And they wanted to keep me because they wanted to keep me for a role. But it would meant either me moving to the corporate office, um, and that meant moving to New Jersey, um or it would mean me traveling twice a month um, basically two weeks out every month traveling um and i could see the writing on the wall where it was like they were saving me for something but if that but the position they put me in was as such that i wasn't going it was kind of one of those deals where they wanted my info they wanted my expertise but no one was going to be accountable for me to me For my expertise, which meant that if things didn't work out, I was gonna be accountable to people who weren't accountable to me. Um, And I just didn't like where that was going. And I thought, great. So here I am, my relationship's over after a, you know, really doing the best you can in that in a tough situation. And the career that I don't even want, but I'm leaning on to leverage what I'm doing looks like. I, that's going to have to make a change. I'm going to have to find a different job. And I yeah. remember sitting in my office one day. I had this beautiful office, probably the most beautiful office I've ever had. It was like in this old mill, like an antique mill along a river in Athens. Brick, exposed duck work. It was gorgeous. Looked out there. I could see like hawks, fish from the water. And literally eat their lunch on a railing out front. It used to be a bar tavern where people would hang out there and then it got converted to office space. But like it was gorgeous. I remember sitting there in shock, going, What am I gonna do? Like I'm losing everything, you know? Yeah. And and I wasn't even committed to the RSP at the level that I am now, you know. And but I remember sitting there and you can call it what you want, but I just remember, I just, well, there was my mind with an imagination, whether you call it a vision, whether you call it a flash, a woo-woo, or, you know, right. or whatever, or just rationalization. I, I just had this image of seeing this box on, like, literally in the middle of a road, and it looked like it had been kind of run over, and it looked like it had grease on it, like, from a car, or, like, an exhaust stains, you know, whatever. It had been there for a while and I'm and walking over and getting close to it. And it was this gift wrap box and I opened it up and it was like nothing but this light, just a bright light. And I just smiled at the, my lowest moment. That was my lowest moment. I remember. Mm-hmm. And I remember just smiling and thought, okay, There's a gift at the end of this that I can't even, I don't even know what it is. It's so bright. I can't even see it. I can't even imagine it, you know, and, um, you know, I always remember that because I had to take, you know, I had to take a job that was 40, that was 60% less than what I was getting paid. You know, I, I was, you know, I had to do a number of different things that to, to balance what I was doing before I even met my wife. But when I met my wife, I understood what that vision was because that was her. But the, the, but you know, and that she helped me take this to another level too, because she was willing to be in on it. But the first part of it was being alone. The first part of it was being alone and, and it being stripped away. Everything that I didn't want to have stripped away, but needed to have stripped away, unfortunately, you know, and I hate to say it that way, but that's what it was. It got stripped away. Um, at least to a, an extent and a certain level, for me to be able to move forward in the direction that I did, and it, and I, again, like I said, I didn't want it that way, you know. So that you know, you have to be understand that you're gonna go through processes like that, and some some of that is the stripping away that's very painful, and then the rebuilding, you know. And you know, fortunately, I have a relationship with the with the family that I helped be a part of you know, before all of this and that's, and that's wonderful. But, uh, you know, that's a, you know, that's one of those things that I would just, I bring up that, you know, with all of this. So I don't know. I think we're done.
1: (laughs) I mean, you had one more big one to get to too. I guess we could save that for next time. We
0: could, unless you just want to, you know, uh, it's up to you. I mean, let's save it for next time. time. Yeah. I think we should. So on that note, listen, you know, I know that was kind of heavy, but it's the offseason, get a chance to reflect a little bit. We're kind of in a reflective mood at this point, or at least I am. We are. You know, but but we appreciate Mark and for all the great work that he does. You can find him, you know, at USA Today, at TD Wire. You can find him at all the various podcasts that he does. Find him at Mark Schofield on Twitter you know, you can always reach out to him. He's one of the most accessible people in this industry and does fantastic, fantastic work. Um, and I couldn't recommend his work enough. And, uh, you can find me at Matt Waldman, or at Matt
1: Waldman. Thanks again.